This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of evaluation, resuscitation, and DCO from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. As a quick introduction, trauma is a major public health problem with high disability, death, and societal cost. There are three peak times of death after trauma, 50% within the first minutes of sustaining the injury, which is caused by massive blood loss or neurologic injury, 30% within the first few days, which is most commonly from shock, hypoxia, or neurologic injury, and 20% within days to weeks following the injury. Multisystem organ failure and infection are the leading causes. It's important to know about the golden hour, which is the period of time when life-threatening and limb-threatening injuries should be treated in order to decrease mortality. It's estimated that 60% of preventable deaths can occur during this time, ranging from minutes to hours. Use of an airbag in a head-on collision significantly decreases the rate of closed head injuries, facial fractures, thoracoabdominal injuries, and need for extraction. As far as psychological factors, 50% of PTSD after a traumatic event involves orthopedic injuries. Females are four times more likely to develop PTSD, and there's a 33% incidence of depression. Now let's talk about evaluation. We'll go over primary survey, secondary survey, and tertiary survey. So in terms of primary survey, treat the greatest threats to life first. For example, pelvic fractures can be life-threatening if not intervened on by orthopedic surgeons. The primary survey should also include a brief history and, of course, the ABCDEs, in which A stands for airway and should include cervical spine control, B is for breathing and ventilation, C stands for circulation, which includes hemorrhage control and resuscitation, which we'll talk more about in a moment, And remember that pregnant women should be placed in the left lateral decubitus position to limit positional hypotension. The D in ABCDE stands for disability, and the E stands for exposure. The secondary survey should include physical examination and an updated history, and you should also obtain indicated imaging studies. The tertiary survey should repeat the physical examination and additional imaging as indicated when mental status has stabilized. A formal tertiary survey decreases the chances of missed orthopedic injury. Now let's talk about the hemorrhagic shock classification and fluid resuscitation. We'll go over the four classes of hemorrhagic shock with respect to percent blood loss, heart rate, blood pressure, urine, pH, mental status, and treatment for each. So starting with class one hemorrhagic shock, the percent blood loss is less than 15% or less than 750 milliliters. Heart rate and blood pressure will both be normal. Urine will be greater than 30 milliliters per hour. pH will be normal. Mental status in these patients will be anxious, and the treatment will be fluid. Moving on to hemorrhagic shock class 2, blood loss will be 15% to 30%, which corresponds to 750 to 1,500 milliliters. Heart rate will be greater than 100 beats per minute. Blood pressure will be normal. Urine will be between 20 to 30 milliliters per hour. pH will be normal. The mental status in these patients will be confused, irritable, and combative. And the treatment for class 2 hemorrhagic shock will also be fluid. Moving on to class 3 hemorrhagic shock, percent blood loss will be 30 to 40%, which corresponds to 1,500 to 2,000 milliliters. Heart rate will be greater than 120 beats per minute. Blood pressure will be decreased. Urine will be 5 to 15 milliliters per hour. pH will be decreased. Mental status will be lethargic and irritable. And treatment will be fluid in blood. In terms of class 4 hemorrhagic shock, the percent blood loss will be greater than 40%, which is life-threatening and this corresponds to greater than 2,000 milliliters of blood loss. Heart rate will be greater than 140 beats per minute. Blood pressure will be decreased. Urine will be negligible. pH will be decreased. Mental status will be lethargic and in a coma. 
and treatment will be fluid and blood. As a quick introduction to hemorrhagic shock classification and fluid resuscitation, an average adult or a 70 kilogram male has an estimated 4.7 to 5 liters of circulating blood. An average child aged 2 to 10 years old has an estimated 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram of circulating blood. In terms of methods of resuscitation, fluids include a crystalloid isotonic solution, blood options include O negative blood, which is the universal donor, type specific blood, cross match blood, and make sure to transfuse in a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio, that is red blood cells to platelets to plasma. Indicators of adequate resuscitation include urine output of 0.5 to 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour or 30 cc's per hour. Another indicator of adequate resuscitation includes serum lactate levels, where normal is less than 2.5 millimoles per liter or less than 45 milligrams per deciliter. This is the most sensitive indicator as to whether some circulatory beds remain inadequately perfused. Another indicator of adequate resuscitation is gastric mucosal pH and base deficit in which normal is negative 2 to positive 2. As far as the risk of viral transmission following allergenic blood transfusion, hepatitis B has the highest risk with 1 in 205,000 donations. Hepatitis C has 1 in 1.8 million donations. And human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, is 1 in 1.9 million. Moving on to non-hemorrhagic shock, in cardiogenic shock, the heart is unable to generate sufficient cardiac output. Neurogenic shock is characterized with hypotension and relative bradycardia from loss of sympathetic tone following spinal cord injury. As far as septic shock versus hypovolemic shock, the key variable to differentiate septic shock and hemorrhagic shock is that systemic vascular resistance is decreased with septic shock and increased with hypovolemic shock. Now let's talk about hypovolemic versus septic shock in a bit more detail and differentiate them based on systemic vascular resistance, cardiac output, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, central venous pressure, and mixed venous oxygen. So in terms of systemic vascular resistance in hypovolemic shock, this will be increased, and in septic shock, it will be decreased. This is again the key variable to differentiate between hypovolemic and septic shock. Moving on to cardiac output, this will be decreased in hypovolemic shock and increased in septic shock. With respect to pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, this will be decreased in hypovolemic shock and also decreased in septic shock. Central venous pressure will also be decreased in both hypovolemic and septic shock. Finally, with respect to mixed venous oxygen, in hypovolemic shock, this will be decreased, while in septic shock, this will be increased. Now, let's talk about imaging. So remember that delay of fracture diagnosis is most commonly caused by failure to image the extremity. Image any extremity with pain, crepitus, ecchymosis, and or deformity. An AP chest radiograph may show mediastinal widening and or pneumothorax. In a lateral C-spine x-ray, you must visualize C7 on T1. This is not commonly utilized in lieu of increased sensitivity with cervical spine CT. Moving on to an AP pelvis with respect to the pelvic ring, further CT imaging should be delayed until preliminary pelvic stabilization has been accomplished. AP pelvis will show you the acetabulum and the proximal femur. A CT scan can be obtained of the C-spine, chest, abdomen, and pelvis and this is often used in the initial evaluation of a trauma patient to rule out life-threatening injuries. Now, let's talk about damage control orthopedics, or DCO, in a bit more detail. As far as the definition slash history, damage control orthopedics means definitive treatment is delayed until the physiology has improved. This was popularized in the year 2000. This replaced the 1980s philosophy of early total care, or ETC, which is the concept of fixing long bone fractures as soon as possible because patients were, quote, too sick not to operate. 
early total care led to the exacerbation of the second hit in a subset of patients with hemodynamic instability, head and or chest injuries. Damage control orthopedics involves staging definitive management to avoid adding trauma to the patient during the vulnerable period. The decision to operate and surgical timing on multiply injured trauma patients remains controversial. Know that intraoperative hypotension increases mortality rates in patients with head injury. Now, let's talk about some parameters that help decide who should be treated with damage control orthopedics. So these parameters include an injury severity score of greater than 40 without thoracic trauma, an injury severity score of greater than 20 with thoracic trauma, a Glasgow coma scale or GCS of 8 or below, multiple injuries with severe pelvic slash abdominal trauma and hemorrhagic shock, bilateral femoral fractures, pulmonary contusions noted on radiographs, hypothermia of less than 35 degrees Celsius, head injury with an AIS of 3 or greater, and IL-6 values above 500 picograms per deciliter. Now let's talk about the optimal time of surgery. So patients are at increased risk of ARDS and multisystem organ failure during the acute inflammatory window, which is the period from 2 to 5 days characterized by a surge in inflammatory markers. Therefore, only potentially life-threatening injuries should be treated in this period, including unstable pelvic fractures, compartment syndrome, fractures with vascular injuries, unreduced dislocations, traumatic amputations, unstable spine fractures, cauda equina syndrome, and or open fractures. Now let's talk about stabilization followed by stage definitive management. So to minimize trauma, initial stabilization should be performed and followed by stage definitive management. This includes initial pelvic volume reduction via a sheet, pelvic packing, skeletal traction, a binder, or external fixation. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, proceed with further imaging, including CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. If the patient is not hemodynamically stable, consider exploratory laparotomy and or pelvic angiography and embolization. Definitive treatment is delayed for 7 to 10 days for pelvic fractures and within 3 weeks for femur fractures, that is conversion from an X-fix to an intramedullary nail, or 7 to 10 days for tibia fractures, also conversion from external fixation to an intramedullary nail. Now, let's end this review session talking about early appropriate care. As far as the definition slash history, early appropriate care identifies major trauma patients and definitively treats the most time-critical orthopedic injuries while minimizing the secondary inflammatory response guided by laboratory parameters of adequate resuscitation. This was popularized in 2013. Parameters include lactate of less than 4 millimoles per liter, pH of greater than or equal to 7.25, and a base excess of greater than or equal to negative 5.5 millimoles per liter. As far as the optimal time of surgery, the goal is to definitively treat spine, pelvis, femur, and acetabulum fractures within 36 hours of injury. As far as outcomes of early appropriate care, this has decreased delay to surgery, decreased complication rates, increased hospital revenues, and know that the main reason for delay to treatment with implementation of this protocol was surgeon decision. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, which of the following statements about polytrauma and organ failure is most correct when comparing children to adults? And the choices are one, adults have a more robust initial inflammatory response affecting the pulmonary system first. Two, adults have a dampened immune response affecting all organ systems simultaneously. Three, adults have a more robust initial inflammatory response affecting all organ systems simultaneously. Four, children have a more robust initial inflammatory response affecting all organ systems simultaneously. And five, children have a dampened immune response affecting the pulmonary system first.
the correct answer to this question is one, adults have a more robust initial inflammatory response affecting the pulmonary system first. So adults have been shown to have a robust initial inflammatory response that affects the pulmonary system first. To quickly review, there is a difference in the systemic response to trauma between children and adults. Children initially have a dampened systemic immune response. They do, however, have a robust local inflammatory response that causes organ failure and affects all organ systems simultaneously. Adults have a robust systemic response with organ failure occurring two to three days after injury. The pulmonary system is usually the first organ system affected in adults. Wood et al. performed a review of the inflammatory response to injury in children. They found that the inflammatory response to injury in children is functionally and mechanistically unique. The incidence of multi-organ failure in children is rare, but affects all organ systems simultaneously when it does occur. Pandya et al. performed a review of the pediatric polytrauma patient. They report that the orthopedic surgeon plays an important role in managing hemodynamic instability, vascular insult, and neurologic damage in the child with multiple injuries. They recommend that if surgical fixation is deemed urgent in the pediatric patient, it can be performed in the early period of multi-system insult. Moving on to the next question, which of the following philosophies in resuscitation of the polytrauma patient utilizes a lactate of less than 4.0 millimoles per liter, a pH of greater than or equal to 7.25, or a base excess of greater than or equal to negative 5.5 millimoles per liter to guide definitive fracture care and is associated with a decreased delay to surgery? And the choices are 1. Early total care, 2. Early appropriate care, 3. Damage control orthopedics, 4. Early definitive care, and five, life over limb. The correct answer to this question is two, early appropriate care. So early appropriate care, or EAC, utilizes the physiologic parameters in the question stem to proceed with definitive fracture treatment when one of the three are met and is associated with a decreased incidence of ARDS, multiple organ failure, mortality, and shorter lengths of stay when polytrauma patients are treated within the first 36 hours of presentation. The philosophy of early total care, the concept that all fractures should be fixed in one trip to the operating room as soon as possible, was developed in the 1980s. This approach to early total care exacerbated the second hit phenomenon, especially in patients with severe chest trauma managed acutely with intramedullary fixation of long bone fractures. Because of this, damage control orthopedics, or DCO, emerged in 2000 and focused on approaching polytrauma patients with a goal of minimizing the impact of the second hit through delayed definitive treatment until physiology is improved, that is stabilization over fixation. Subsequently, the concept of early appropriate care was developed in 2013, aiming to identify major trauma patients and definitively treat the most time-critical injuries without exacerbating the secondary inflammatory response. Utilizing a lactate of less than 4.0 millimoles per liter, pH of greater than or equal to 7.25, or a base excess of greater than or equal to negative 5.5 millimoles per liter, definitive fracture care can proceed when any of these criteria are met. Vallier et al. developed a protocol to determine the timing to definitive fracture care based on adequacy of resuscitation at a level 1 trauma center. In a prospective study, they examined patient outcomes following definitive fixation of pelvis, acetabulum, spine, and femur fractures within 36 hours of injury with timing based on parameters for acidosis. They found that surgeon preference was the most common reason for delay in definitive treatment with this protocol, but after two years of implementation, only 10% of fractures were definitively treated outside of this protocol. 
Vallier et al. in a follow-up study again advocated for early appropriate care with the goal of standardizing resuscitation assessment and expediting fracture care to reduce length of stay and improve hospital revenue. They found that delayed fixation, defined as greater than 36 hours, of femur, pelvis, or spine fractures resulted in more complications, prolonged hospital stay, and a mean decrease in facility collections of 5%. Vallier et al. further described the development of their protocol for early appropriate care utilizing a statistical model based on a retrospective database of 1,443 adults with pelvis, acetabulum, spine, and femur fractures. They found that an uncomplicated course was associated with the absence of an associated chest injury and definitive fixation within 24 to 48 hours. They conclude that acidosis on presentation is associated with complications and developed a predictive model based on acidosis, chest injury severity, number of fractures, and timing to definitive fixation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, early total care is the concept that all fractures should be fixed in one trip to the operating room. Answer three, damage control orthopedics is the concept of approaching polytrauma patients with the goal of minimizing the impact of the second hit, whereas definitive treatment is delayed until physiology is improved. And finally, answers four and five, early definitive care and life over limb are not defined treatment philosophies in the management of polytrauma patients. Moving on to the next question. A 42-year-old man falls down a ravine while mountain biking and is airlifted to a trauma center. Initial evaluation within one hour of injury reveals a temperature of 38.1 degrees Celsius, pulse rate of 119, blood pressure of 110 over 59, and bilateral femur and bilateral tibial shaft fractures. He has a Glasgow coma scale of 15. The trauma surgeon follows standard precautions, and the patient has a negative CT chest abdomen pelvis, after which he is sent to the floor to await surgical intervention the next day. Four hours later, a rapid response is called after his pulse is noted to be 140 and blood pressure is 88 over 50. Which statement best describes the patient's hemodynamic status from presentation onward? And the choices are 1. The patient has likely lost about 20% of his total blood volume. 2. The patient presented in class 2 hemorrhagic shock and is now in class 3 hemorrhagic shock. 3. This patient has a decompensation of his hemodynamic status and the radiologist likely missed a solid organ injury given his most recent parameters. 4. The patient cannot go to the operating room for at least 24 hours. And 5. The patient's decline in blood pressure is likely due to cardiogenic shock. The correct answer to this question is 2. The patient presented in class 2 hemorrhagic shock and now is in class 3 hemorrhagic shock. So the patient presented with vital signs indicative of class 2 hemorrhagic shock as he is tachycardic with greater than 100 beats per minute and maintained blood pressure. When his rapid response was called, he was increasingly tachycardic and hypotensive, which defines class 3 hemorrhagic shock, which is tachycardia with greater than 120 beats per minute with a decreased blood pressure. To quickly review, long bone fractures, especially femurs, are an important source of bleeding in trauma patients. Each thigh can accommodate around 20% of total blood volume alone. With four long bone fractures and a triage presentation in class 2 shock, the patient likely would have benefited from a more aggressive resuscitation and closer monitoring in the ICU. While early total care can place patients with pulmonary and head injuries at a higher risk of complications, patients with fractures as their only source of bleeding may be best treated with aggressive resuscitation and early stabilization of their long bones. Labs like lactate levels and base access can help guide resuscitation. The ATLS handbook put out by the American College of Surgeons provides estimations of percent total blood volume loss for given vital sign changes and a patient's mental status. While these are only estimations, they can help clinicians understand the severity of a patient's hemorrhagic shock and guide resuscitation.
Gulli et al. compare estimated blood volume loss in trauma patients to their vital signs in the UK over a nearly two-decade span. They concluded that the ATLS guidelines may underestimate the actual blood loss in patients for their given cutoffs of vital sign abnormalities. Of course, it can be extremely difficult to estimate blood loss in an acute trauma patient. Therefore, comparing ongoing sources to a patient's resuscitation parameters may offer a better understanding of their hemodynamics than estimating fluids alone. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, the patient has likely lost about 20% of his blood volume is incorrect as the patient presented in class 2 shock or compensated class 2 shock, but now is in class 3 shock, which estimates 30 to 40% loss of total blood volume. Answer 3, this patient has a decompensation of his hemodynamic status and the radiologist likely missed a solid organ injury given his most recent parameters is incorrect, as while it is true that his hemodynamic status is decompensating, this can occur from multiple long bone fractures alone, especially with bilateral femoral shaft fractures. Answer 4, the patient cannot go to the operating room for at least 24 hours is incorrect, as orthopedic surgeons need to remain an active member in the early resuscitation and care for trauma patients, and ultimately this patient's bleeding is best treated with stabilizing the patient's long bones. And finally, answer 5, the patient's decline in blood pressure is likely due to cardiogenic shock is incorrect, as cardiogenic shock refers to a condition where the heart is the reason that inadequate tissue perfusion occurs. Most commonly, it is associated with myocardial infarcts that affect enough myocardium that the pump function is inadequate. Most patients in blunt traumas who present in shock have hemodynamic shock, which responds to fluid-slash-blood products. The first-line treatment in cardiogenic shock is ionotropic support. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old man is brought in with a Glasgow coma scale of 3 and is intubated in the field following a motor vehicle collision. He's found to have grade 4 liver and splenic lacerations as well as an open book pelvic fracture, bilateral open tibia fractures, a closed left forearm fracture, and a left femoral shaft fracture. Which of the following variables is the most predictive of mortality? And the choices are 1. End tidal carbon dioxide of 47 millimeters of mercury. 2. Hematocrit of 18.5. 3. Heart rate of 150 beats per minute. 4. Base excess of less than 12 milliequivalents per liter and 5, blood pressure of 90 over 50 millimeters of mercury. The correct answer to this question is 4, base excess of less than 12 milliequivalents per liter. So base excess, or deficit, is the most important value in determining overall resuscitation status of a polytrauma patient and will dictate initial fracture management when deciding between definitive fixation and damage control orthopedics. Base deficit is synonymous with systemic lactate present, which directly reflects the overall resuscitation status following trauma. Normal reference values are negative 2 to positive 2 milliequivalents per liter and 0.6 to 1.7 millimoles per liter, respectively. Excessive deficit or lactate should prompt DCO and temporary stabilization. Abramson et al. prospectively followed 76 ICU polytrauma patients and found that survival was 100% if lactate was corrected within the first 24 hours and 75% if corrected within the first 48 hours. They found that the time needed to normalize serum lactate levels also is an important prognostic factor for survival in severely injured patients. Manicus et al. prospectively followed 100 ICU patients following serum lactate levels until normalization. Lactate levels were the most significant prognostic indicator of morbidity and mortality, and not only the absolute lactate level, but the duration of hyperlactatemia can be correlated with the development of organ failure. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, end tidal carbon dioxide does not predict mortality or morbidity and should not be the marker for resuscitation status. 
Answer two, hematocrit does not predict mortality or morbidity and should not be the marker for resuscitation status. Answer three, heart rate does not predict mortality or morbidity and should not be the marker for resuscitation status. And finally, five, blood pressure does not predict mortality or morbidity and also should not be the marker for resuscitation status. And moving on to the final question, a 45-year-old male is involved in a motorcycle crash. Workup reveals a closed right femoral shaft fracture, an open right tibial shaft fracture, a closed left mid-shaft radius and ulna fractures, and a closed left femoral shaft fracture. His heart rate is 115 beats per minute with a systolic blood pressure of 105 millimeters of mercury. Initial hematocrit values are reported at 31.5 grams per deciliter, and his base deficit is 10 milliequivalents per liter. What is the most appropriate next step in management? And the choices are one, reamed intramedullary nailing of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by reamed intramedullary nailing of the right tibia, as well as open reduction internal fixation of the left forearm. Two, reamed intramedullary nailing of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by external fixation of the right tibia, and splinting of the left forearm. Three, external fixation of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by external fixation of the right tibia, and open reduction internal fixation of the left forearm. Four, external fixation of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by external fixation of the right tibia, and splinting of the left forearm. And finally, five, external fixation of the right femur and right tibia following irrigation and debridement, reamed intramedullary nailing of the left femur, and splinting of the left forearm. The correct answer to this question is four, external fixation of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by external fixation of the right tibia, and splinting of the left forearm. So with a base deficit of 10 milliequivalents per liter, the patient is under-resuscitated and unstable. Thus, damage control orthopedics via external fixation of the long bone injuries with irrigation and debridement of the open tibia is the appropriate next step in management. Of all of the reported values, the most important predictor of morbidity and mortality is the base deficit, where normal range is negative 2 to positive 2 milliequivalents per liter, which represents overall resuscitation status. Another representative parameter of resuscitation status is lactate, where normal is less than 2 milligrams per deciliter. Heart rate, blood pressure, and hematocrit are not reliable predictors of normalized resuscitation status, morbidity, or mortality. Callaway et al. retrospectively reviewed a large cohort of blunt trauma patients over a six-year period. Only base deficit and lactate levels were directly correlated with and were reliable predictors of mortality. Palladino et al. retrospectively reviewed a prospective database of over 1,400 patients. Base deficit and lactate were significant and useful predictors of triage upon initial presentation to denote severe versus non-severe injury. Martin et al. retrospectively analyzed over 2,000 sets of laboratory data in 427 ICU patients. Base deficit, or anion status, even in ICU patients with normal lactate levels were predictive of decreased survival. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, Answer 1, reamed intramedullary nailing of bilateral femur fractures, irrigation and debridement followed by reamed intramedullary nailing of the right tibia, and open reduction internal fixation of the left forearm is incorrect as this represents ultimate definitive fixation. However, in an unstable patient, this should not be the next step in management. And finally, answers 2, 3, and 5 are all incorrect as when employing damage control orthopedics, temporary stabilization should include external fixation of all long bone injuries and splinting of upper extremity injuries. That's all for this review about evaluation, resuscitation, and DCO. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets. 
the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.